Hello, and welcome to the Unique CPA with your host, Randy Crabtree. We're committed to creating a thriving community of accounting professionals who are physically and mentally healthy, fulfilled, and energized by their work. Our ultimate goal is to elevate the reputation of the accounting profession and vastly improve the lives of those in it. The Unique CPA is brought to you by Trimerit, the specialty tax professionals. Hello, everybody. I'm very excited for our live Unique CPA podcast, sponsored and really put on by Trimerit Specialty Tax Professionals, which is an organization that uh, I founded or co-founded 17 years ago, and the organization that did a lot of work with the employee retention credit, which, as we discussed today, may be coming to an end quicker than we expected. So today's um, overall theme that we're going to discuss is the employee retention credit, ERC, ERTC, to some of you. Uh, I like to leave the T out because that's way too many initials to uh, to have to say in one mouthful. But we're going to discuss that. Let me give you a little set the stage up for what we're going to do today. And then I'm going to just uh, hand it over to these two to introduce themselves. So really, it's ERC. You know, you all know ERC. We're really almost four years into ERC from an initial definition in the CARES Act of March in 2020. Just to give you some background, none of us got all that excited about ERC when it was initially defined because of its not playing well with PPP. Uh, You kind of couldn't do both and not kind of, you couldn't uh, uh, um, do both. But then we got a change in that at the end of 2020 with the Consolidated Appropriation Act that uh, eliminated that uh, exclusion. If you took a PPP, you could start to take ERC. Many of you know this background, just want to let you set the stage. So we're really we really are about three years into the ERC as we all know it now, the ERC that was redefined at the end of, of 2020. And we all felt we had a pretty good handle on this. We thought it was a great opportunity, which it was for taxpayers. We, we got a lot of guidance in the first you know, six months of uh, the year of 21 through notices from the IRS. And we got a lot of guidances from people like uh, Nick and Dan here, too, uh, as this was coming out, because we were all scrambling for information. How does this work? Who qualifies? You know, how do you calculate it? What's the interplay between all these different incentives in the ERC? So all that stuff was trickling out. Um, but these two were at the forefront of that. And, and that's why they're on here today. Unfortunately, anytime you have something that this potentially lucrative to taxpayers and beneficial. The whole point of ERC was to be beneficial to taxpayers. We were helping companies that were in need. We were going through pandemic and we had companies in need. Unfortunately, when that happens, you're going to see people try to take advantage of those rules. And we did see that. I know Dan and I and Nick probably by mid-21 we're already seeing it, and maybe even earlier than that, we were seeing that the people were taking advantage of this. This is the way I look at it. Changing the rules to fit their needs, not following the rules that Congress and IRS had set out for us. And so that became an issue, but we continued, obviously, helping the taxpayers that really take advantage of this. Man, I am four minutes in. I haven't even let these guys talk yet. Um, let me give Nick and Dan a chance to introduce themselves and uh, their ERC history. And honestly, guys, uh, you know, put it all out there because you are experts in this industry. Nick, I'm going to start with you. Okay. Uh, so Nick Panaleo, one of the partners at Trimerit. Really, my biggest role in, in ERC was in helping start up and establish what the guidelines are for qualifying 
I work hand in hand with the head of our ERC division constantly looking at new scenarios that pop up. So that's been most of my role along with, you know, working with the IRS on all the issues that popped up with clients. Uh, and along the way, I've been very fortunate that a resource like Dan has been out there because Dan has always been the one breaking the news. So I'm kind of doing a lead into you here, Dan. But um, very often there, there's issues that popped up and I'd email Dan and we bounce ideas off each other to see like, hey, are you seeing this? How are you treating this? Or have you seen this type of scenario out there? And one thing before I hand it over to Dan, Nick, uh, uh, you probably uh, <laughs> have signed more 941Xs than than most people in the country, I assume yeah. as well, right? <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, I was involved in in uh, pretty much the filing of all of our 941X forms. So. Yep. And the rules that changed on that. I mean, because mm-hmm. each 941X seemed to be different each quarter. And so you were on top of that yeah. as well. All right, Dan, over to you. And before I let you jump in, I just want to reiterate what Nick said. Dan has been so helpful to me personally. When we first jumped into this, I got addicted to ERC. And I actually think I remember the date, January 7th of 2021. I was actually on vacation. I heard about this change in the Consolidated Appropriation Act, and I was just, I couldn't get enough. I started digging into it. And one of the first people that I was introduced to, not personally, but introduced to through Twitter. Uh, People told me, you got to go see this guy, Dan Choden, because he's putting a lot of good information out on ERC. So if there is a king of Twitter, ERC, no, there is a king. There's not even a question mark. There is a king of Twitter education on ERC, and that's Dan Choden. And Dan, uh, welcome to this uh, live uh, broadcast, and and please uh, give us an introduction. Sure. Yeah, I really have been a nerd for this program as well. Uh, just like the two of you, um, you know, from the very beginning, been a lot of fun, built it up here uh, at Trout CPA for our clients first. And then that's turned into helping others referrals beyond that, of course, as there's just lots of businesses that, that needed to take advantage of this. But it also grew really into just helping other professionals, doing consulting around it, just the technical aspects because I've been really outspoken about it. I've had a lot of those opportunities, helping the AICPA build some resources on some of their platforms and town hall and podcasts. So that's been really fun. And just getting to know others that are dealing with these same issues and just being able to get to know and see the quality professionals that are out there and firms doing great work in this area. So it's been a fun thing. Sad in a in a way that our all this knowledge is going to be useless in a week, most likely. <laughs> but here we are. You know, we we had a great run with enjoying it and helping clients through something that was so positive. That was so meaningful. Probably one of the most meaningful things we could do for a client in helping with these relief dollars and things they would would not have otherwise seen. But I would also be remiss if I didn't take the opportunity here. Jumping on been a big fan of the podcast, of course, a fan of Randy and seeing you do more and more. I got to say congratulations on the top 100 most influential accountants. That was well-deserved. Great to see that. And excited to see you keep keep doing things out there speaking, the conference as well you did. So congratulations again. Very well-deserved. Well, thank you. I honestly, just a couple more things. Dan was the first one to really explain the uh, owner rules, the 50% or more owner of a business, you know, doesn't qualify to take ERC. He was the first one out there with that. Uh, He was out there debunking the OSHA claims that OSHA will qualify you for ERC. So Dan's been on top of all of that from day one. So let's get into what we're going to talk about today. I'll set the stage. A few things that we want to touch on is it's going to be a discussion. We'll talk about the moratorium. 
you know, that is something that may not matter anymore in a week anyways, because uh, they will start processing past claims. So we'll talk about how that's affected. There's two versions of an amnesty program we'll touch on. Uh, we will touch on the Tax Relief for American Families and Workers Act, which could eliminate at this point is proposed to eliminate the ERC program January 31st. We'll talk about increased statute. Uh, the IRS can look at this. And tied with that, that is there's some penalties that can be associated. So hopefully we'll touch on some of that during the discussion. Um, but first, uh, either of you, you know, let's just do a quick, maybe moratorium update. Anybody want to jump in on that one? I'll, I'll let you guys decide who uh, who goes first. Well, sure. No, it's It's been uh, certainly an interesting time to talk to clients and say, what does the timeline and say, as in response, we have absolutely no idea. This is uncharted water, you know, at least through December 31st has now turned into something later. And what's the speed when this does restart? The backlog's huge. It's still a great unknown. So my line has been in regards to the moratorium, uh, if you have a valid claim, it's in there, it's filed. Don't expect the money. Don't plan to spend it. Don't don't plan on a date. We're just going to monitor it. And it's not a matter of if, just a matter of when and when is who knows? The the latest word from Commissioner Werfel was they are in a scanning process now and that they need at least four more months to get through that process before they consider the lift. So we're talking about maybe sometime in the summer at the earliest, they, they may start some of this again, how fast and, and what that looks like at that time. Could it be pushed later? I think we'll see. That, that process could be helped along by this January 31st cutoff as well. You know, that backlog, you know, if that happens, would be frozen. The claims are what they are at that point, and it's just a matter of how fast do they start working through them, but at least it won't be growing from there. So that's certainly an interesting thing uh, to look at. You have to wonder if some of what we're talking about here, you know, the withdrawal process, perhaps that is also going to be aligned with the moratorium lift when it's announced at some point. You know, there's been no announced end date to that. That was also said to be at least through the end of the year. So more to come. But the line, of course, for unfortunately clients is don't expect it. Don't count on it. Don't spend it in advance. And if it's a nice surprise as a Christmas present, maybe plan on Christmas of next year, uh, not this year at this stage with what with what it is and what's going on. It's just the unfortunate result of the, the negative aspects of this program. And honestly, we've been in a very similar timeline of advisement. When this started, we started telling people like, hey, it's definitely not happening through the end of the year. We know that much. It says at least. So how far does that extend? And that's where you don't know. And I was telling clients like, hey, if I'm in your shoes, I'm happy if it happens summer of 2024 for processing time. But you should expect like this could take a year. You know, if you just file in the fourth quarter, it's very well, like you said, it, it might be Christmas. You shouldn't have an expectation that's going to come quick and trying to convey that to clients to let them know. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not a fun discussion, right? But but that's the fact. So any clients are asking, you know, and there people are asking about deadlines, it has to be later. It's not going to be anytime soon. And to Dan's point, you know, are they going to time it with the end of the amnesty program, which is going to happen in March? That could make sense, right? Give people time to get as many claims withdrawn as possible. And then, okay, we'll stop the moratorium and we'll start processing after that. Maybe, or it could be if this bill passes and they, you know, end the program 131, maybe that's when we'll start processing. We don't know. You know, we can make assumptions, but we don't know that it's going to be soon. So you have to assume it's going to be extended. There's some dates out there you can take guesses at that it makes sense to align, but the summer is hopeful. And so I think one of the key things to point out in this moratorium is, 
And I, there's been a miss, I think, no more out there by a lot of professionals thinking, OK, I shouldn't be filing during the moratorium because, you know, their rules could change. That's not happening. And if this tax relief bill goes through, um, which could be as early as Monday, the 29th, you will not have an opportunity to to submit again. And so you should if you have valid claims. Dan mentioned this already. If you have valid claims, those claims have to be sent in now because you're putting it at risk. Because if you don't get it in a week from today, the very well not going to get it in. And and these things don't happen overnight. This is not an immediate on your end as a professional to figure out the numbers. This is not a quick calculation. Sorry, right, let's get to the more, the uh, amnesty program because there's two different versions of this. There was one that was announced, I, I, was it August or September of last year? I think it was September, right when the moratorium started, um, that pretty much, uh, I can summarize this and you guys can jump in. Pretty much the first version said, if you have not received a refund yet for a claim you submitted, or you've got the refund check, but you have not cashed it, you can actually send us some information and say, you are not going to accept this money is the bottom line, and we are going to uh, uh, send a check back or don't send us a check. And that was the first version of an amnesty. Uh, anything I missed on that? Any highlights you guys want to add to that? No, I mean, the, the, the first one was pretty straightforward. It was, you know, more of a withdrawal program than an amnesty program because it's yep. for people who hadn't cashed the checks yet, pretty much. You got those checks, they're either sitting there waiting for it or you made a claim in process and you're not sure about it. You're able to either fax in a form and they would essentially cancel out your claim or you're able to actually send back the checks, you know, as you mentioned, to not accepted. Um, it's pretty straightforward and, and not as, uh, for lack of a better term, beneficial as the new amnesty program. Yeah. There was one surprise I'd, I'd highlight in that even if someone was under examination, if it was a claims exam, they hadn't cashed the checks, you know, hadn't been paid yet in a claims exam up front before payment, they could utilize the withdrawal process and not be subject, you know, to to any other harm, you know, make, make it like it never happened, basically, is what the withdrawal program does, right? So, that was a surprise. It's a departure from typically if you're audited under an issue, there's no way to get out of that, issue, right? <laughs> the, the classic uh, qualified amended return procedures and other ways. Yeah, once you're caught, you're caught and you can't necessarily get out of uh, the interest and penalties and, or whatever that might be. So that was uh, for the first indication that the IRS was trying to look for ways to make this easier. And again, if they can save resources by going ahead and even someone under audit, if they can just not take that money, if they can withdraw that claim, all right, that's one more case close and they can move on and save those resources, right? And that came out even more so in the voluntary disclosure program. There was hopes that there would be something really beneficial within that. Uh, but personally, I didn't think it would go as far as it did. Uh, it was a, it was a surprise there to see the IRS you know, really put a stake in the ground and we want you to take advantage of this. We want it to be easy. We want it to be beneficial. We want this to be your absolute best opportunity to get right in that. Yeah, this voluntary withdrawal program is what we'll discuss now. And, and just when this came out, my reaction was, what? Wow. I mean, that was pretty much the reaction because they are one that they just don't have the resources to audit all the inaccurate claims that were submitted. And so rather than having to try to audit all these, let's let you voluntarily give us the money back and we're going to give you a benefit for that. But if you don't, then there's all this potential penalties that kick in. So, Dan, I know you're pretty up on this. Do you want to kind of explain this program that came out? What was it? End of December, I think. Yeah, yeah. It was a, a little a little bit buried right before the holiday. 
they did uh, get it out uh, before the end of the year, which was what they were were saying. So uh, great benefit of the program in that it eliminates the audit risk. It eliminates the penalty risk. It is only an 80% repayment. They're taking into account the idea that many of these that might not have filed valid claims were taken in by someone charging a large fee. That's just going to be hard to repay money that they didn't necessarily get. So that was a, a tremendous benefit. Uh, also within the program, the interest received on the refunds would not have to be repaid. Full wage deduction uh, for ERC, even though only 80% is being repaid. So the tax implications of this are, are even better. And yeah, it's a basically all around very flexible, trying to make this as easy as possible for someone that wants to do the right thing, that they can have every opportunity to do so in this program. So it does have a very limited time frame. We know the withdrawal is also going to be limited. We don't know until when, but we have March 22nd on the disclosure program, the actual repayment program here. So that's a limited time frame. My biggest thought around this is what we're going to talk about later. Now we have a bill that changes some things. It changes the environment. This voluntary disclosure program is even more important than when it was introduced. We have an IRS that's fully funded, uh, overfunded in some people's opinions, perhaps, you know, they have funding and they want to prove they could use it to make things happen. And now this new bill would give them a tremendous amount of time to do that the statute of limitations being longer and the ability to go after. And uh, we're going to talk about that bill. But because of that, now the risk of this is heightened. There's going to be more interest in this. The IRS has already been tremendously interested in this area because of all the issues, because of the huge dollars at stake. And I don't see that changing. And this is only going to be emboldening the IRS now, giving them the resources that they needed to go after uh, promoters and to audit more claims in this way. So the voluntary disclosure program, I think, is is only more important, only more valuable. With the moratorium continuing to push out, I have a suspicion maybe we get some more time, but I wouldn't assume that, right? You know, March 22nd is the date. I will operate off of that, but I would not be surprised if the IRS comes out and says, "Hey, you know, we're going to start claims up in the summer or some other time. We've had some success with disclosure. We're going to extend that." And we're going to offer it to more because now, hey, there's this new law with higher risk and higher statute timeframes. So maybe we get more along this line. Again, I would not assume that. The dollars they recoup from this are just going to be more than they could ever enforce. Even with larger resources, you can't audit you know, millions of claims here uh, that have gone on. Uh, and I don't think anyone expects that's going to happen for the IRS, even with all, all of what this is. Uh, risk is heightened. But this is still their best opportunity to easily bring these dollars back in. So we got to communicate with all of our clients. Now, now is the time. It's unfortunate that it's in our busy season, but if there's any chance, now is the opportunity uh, to look at it and not just to communicate with those that you're aware of that may have issues, but to broadly communicate because in all likelihood, that spike of claims that happened over the last 12, 16, 18 months, you know, you've seen the charts, the claims just continue to escalate. We may not be aware of them as tax pros yet. You know, that, that may be money that shows up on a trial balance that we're not going to get until February or March and, and realize, oh, there's a million dollar deposit. There's, you know, 100,000 here. So we are going to be surprised by some of those after the fact. There's many claims that have happened that are sitting in this backlog that haven't been paid. So having this communication now, it's a limited time frame. 
and we might not find out until later and the opportunity is gone. So I urge broad communication. It's something we've done already to make everyone aware that this disclosure program's out there. And if they've used a third party, it's not a guarantee, of course, that they have to uh, utilize this, but they should be considering it. It's a very limited, limited opportunity with a lot of benefit. Got to communicate it. Yeah. And all the benefits tied to it, not just that you get to keep 20% of the tax impacts. When you think about that, like, why would they do that? And you're talking about there is widespread fraud for one thing, but it was to that coin too, is they understand that a lot of companies were just straight tricked. A lot of these mills out there, like they were convincing these companies that they were qualified and they had solid arguments that would kind of pull in, like, you know, pick little parts they wanted to from the guidance and twist it to make it work. And without having someone else come in and say like, no, it doesn't work like that. They didn't know, you know, that they assume that they actually work off and the IRS knows that they're aware of that. They want these companies to not be put in these terrible situations where they got this money. It's paid all back plus penalties, you know, plus interest because they know that they weren't fully aware of it. And you you do have an obligation, obviously, as a client to still try to make the best decision and be informed. But there was widespread misinformation out there. The IRS knows that they're trying to help these businesses any way they can. So like Dan said, anyone who you think might need to know, they need, you know, it needs to be communicated as such. You could get some of those cases for people who are kind of on the fence. This can help them make that decision to avoid a potential audit and penalties because as Dan said, with the new bill, if it does go into play, they have a lot more teeth coming in. Well, let's let's talk about that new bill because we keep alluding to it. We've talked about that at the beginning. Then we got this tax relief for American Families and Workers Act of 2024. The key thing in there that we've been talking about and I mentioned at the beginning is if this passes, which next week we, you know, do we expect it to pass? I think we probably all expect it to pass at this point. Are you guys just a quick yes or no? What do you think? Uh, 75%? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'd say a matter, a matter of uh, just when, not if. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Expectation. Okay. So this will pass. And what it will do is it'll it'll end no more filings after January 31st, 24th. That's the key thing that everybody knows. But there's a lot more in that bill regarding ERC than just that. So I'll let you guys, because you guys, yesterday on our pre-call, you were having a great discussion on the, on this and what the impacts of, of the other aspects of this there. So you guys want to just jump into it and start discussing from the penalties, from the statute, everything else that, that is in this potential bill? Go ahead, Nick. I, okay. I was talking for a while. <laughs> well, I'll say, I'll say, why, why don't we start with you know this the six year statute and what that does not only on the audit side, but with the need to not make protective filings. That was a question and a comment someone put in here. If this bill goes through, it not only extends the audit statute to six years, which just tells you how much they're going to go after this program, right? They wouldn't do that if they didn't have the intent that hey, we're going to go audit this. It's going to happen. It's why the amnesty program is in place. It's going to be there, but. They're also going to extend the statute to be able to amend your filings. So a lot of firms are looking at, do we need to make protective filings, for example? With the six-year statute, when they're doing it, they're making sure you don't have to do that. So if something changes in audit, you're going to be able to go back to the years and make the adjustments necessary to that. So there won't be a need to make protective filings. I want to make sure we answer that comment right away because it was out there. But yeah, the six-year statute, that's to me, that's the, you know, the additional biggest piece of this because it does fix some of the issues repairs we're having. It does give them more more teeth for audit, and it, it does show just how serious they are about making sure that this program is legitimate for everyone who received it. Real quick, protective filing. So you're saying the protective filing, you're talking from the income tax side of, of aspects. Could the question be, can I do a protective 941X 
because I don't know the numbers yet and have the ability to amend it later? Is that a, a something that we need to discuss? There's two aspects there. Yeah. So I think a lot of the worry had been the mismatch before of having an issue with not being able to go back and deduct the wages if you were denied a claim later. That's the income tax effect. So that's aligned in the bill. But yes, the 941X protective claims, this has been discussed a lot. But the issue with a lot of these is that usually a protective claim needs to be based on an uncertainty, you know, a pending court case that needs to pass. And so if it's if it's solely based on eligibility, and just, hey, we think that the IRS is wrong or, or something of that regard. It's not necessarily a protective claim in, in that way. Um, what I would encourage is if we have partial information and we need to make an estimate uh, because we have, uh, you know, the payroll data, but we don't have all the other elements of this, you know, filing the best estimate that we can and disclosing that and an opportunity to adjust that later. So I think that's different than to say that this is purely a protective claim because we think, well, maybe sometime down the road, someone might challenge something and it could change. In incomplete cases where there's estimates that need to be filed, some things are going to get pushed through. And I would say, yeah, it's okay to be in that boat, being conservative in, in that way and saying, hey, we need to file with the best information that we have before this time as well. Okay. And then Dan, you were going to expand on the six years? Oh yeah. So six years is worse than six years. Uh, <laughs> uh, so you know, we, we hear six years and the statute was already three years and five years for a couple quarters. So oh, six years. Okay. There's a little more time. It points in this direction, but the bill is written six years from the later of the statute date or the date of the filing. Yeah. So it's substantially more. We have 2020 claims that were about to have their assessment statute expire this April. Now, if you file that 2020 claim today, it's not this, this April, it's six years from today. Uh, because again, most of these claims were not filed timely. They weren't filed on original returns or even in, in the original years for that first April 15th statute. You know, we've had the spike in this activity throughout 2022 through 23 has been heavily reported as this wave has come. There's some estimates that the backlog of claims now is greater than everything that's been paid already, right? So most of these are going to have a, a, a longer statute. So six years is longer. It's also much longer in that it's from the date of filing. Uh, not just the regular assessment. So, you know, going back to that voluntary disclosure piece, we have a well-funded IRS that's very focused in this area. It's not meaning they're going to audit every single one, but the audit risk is increased with this moving through, with with this expected to pass. That just heightens the need. All right. So let's let's go. There's another question that came in. Let's do this question before we get to the next uh, aspect of uh, of this bill. If the service conducts an audit of an ERC claim and makes a finding. Do you have any sense whether U.S. Court of Federal Claims or U.S. District Court would be a better venue to appeal? I don't have an answer. Either of you? Nah, this is this is outside of what I would be doing in litigation. Yeah, yeah. yeah your best chance of winning one of these is, is going to be at that that audit. As far as going to appeals, uh, I don't have a sense of one being better than the other. I would just say with with the litigation and and the thought of some of this, a lot of this is based on a pervasive feeling out there that, okay, we can just look at the law itself and ignore the IRS's guidance because it didn't go through the APA procedures. So we're going to pick and choose the pieces that we like, ignore the pieces that we don't like. I see a lot um, and and move forward based on that. But I, I would just caution everybody in this 
regard because this is mostly related to more than nominal, the 10% threshold the IRS set out, and in my opinion, is extremely low as a threshold. If we can't meet that threshold of showing a more than nominal effect, you know, that reduced ability of greater than 10% to provide a good or service, you know, if we can't achieve even that low threshold in the guidance, do we really think we can get an appeal that's going to be sustained on, on something that's less than that through the, through the courts? I mean, this will be litigated. It'll happen. But I would just be very cautious out there, you know, when we hear these things, because yeah, I look at this and see the IRS as being very generous so if we can't even meet those thresholds, uh, it's just something to be concerned about, something to be cautious over. Um, and more concerning is usually these things are happening without the client understanding, right? So a client may not consider a claim or look at it the same way if they get the actual advice that this goes against the IRS's stated guidance. If you are challenged, you will lose an audit, you will lose an appeal, you'll have to be prepared to litigate this beyond the IRS because their position has been clear in this area and this doesn't comport with that. So I, yeah, we hear those things a lot. I don't know that that advice is really being given and, and that, that changes decisions for clients that they, they need to be prepared to go to war beyond the IRS uh, to have any hope. And even then it's, it, it's a struggle because I think the bar is set very reasonably. Yep. I, I agree with everything you say, Dan. That's the same thing I was thinking that this is, I know there's a lot out there that makes the rules look gray or even you know hard to interpret to me they're pretty black and white it, it is pretty straightforward to figure out how you qualify and how you don't and i say that because there's a lot of people pushing things like the osha rules that you had debunked and you know people were, were thinking i can qualify and, and we know that's not the case we and irs actually came out and debunked that after you did they probably stole from you <laughs> but that's out there it, it is honestly Anybody that's dug deep into it, it's honestly pretty straightforward. And what Dan said, that you would have to challenge what IRS is saying. You would have to go against the guidance that, to me, is pretty black and white out there right now. Yes, you do. No, you don't. And so that would be, unfortunately, I don't have an opinion on, on where it would be better to uh, appeal that claim. Sorry about that. But, uh, but that, I just don't see us going to that level at all with any claims because I just don't think you have an opportunity to win. Nope. Going to that level, like you said, Dan, we've actually talked to a couple clients and told them like, hey, what, what you're trying to go for with the angle, that's exactly what you need to do. You know, you're not going to be able to win this in an in IRS audit. You're going to have to go to the next level. And we told them like, for that reason, like, you know, we can't you know, move forward with this, right? Because we have no way to defend this and we can't do that. So it's been out there. We know people have taken that position, whether they're intending to go fight it there. I don't know. I think they just really think they can win it. Okay, so one thing we didn't talk about, because they did highlight this in the voluntary disclosure, they were highlighting the uh, the penalties that are potential mm-hmm. if you don't comply. So do you want to jump into that now? That, that's where I was going to lead us. That's perfect. Oh, you're perfect going to. Yep. <laughs> I was going to say, um, you know, Dan, like reading through that, that bill, as far as like the penalties, do you want to touch on real quick what they're considering an ERC promoter first with the rules of being eligible for new penalties that you wouldn't? normally be eligible for with how a lot of these shops were set up. Yeah. And the focus there is definitely those that have done a lot of the work. And then also uh, those that are charging percent of the refund fees. So, you know, they're, they're doing a few different things in that, in the definition of it and the penalties that could apply. They've also introduced some due diligence requirements uh, within that, which are, are interesting and in, in how that's going to actually work. Uh, the details of that will be interesting as they come out. But for now, I think the takeaway is 
you know, they, they've drawn a line in the sand. They've made it clear. The rhetoric has been there. And now Congress is getting behind what the IRS has said, what the IRS is telling them. So, you know, these promoters that are out there, you know, they're going to have to report. They're going to have to be subject to these things if this bill goes through, as we expect. And unfortunately, there's going to be uh, some that are pulled into that that may be filing good claims and have just done a lot of it. Right. And so I, I don't want to pretend that everybody that simply falls into the definition is at risk. Frankly, I think the IRS knows the worst players already. They can see many that are signing as preparer already. They can see those that are getting tax authorizations, getting power of attorneys to see when refunds hit. You know, that's that's a key thing for uh, shops to get paid their big fees. So so they can see it already. I, I think they're very aware. This is just more information. It's something else that they can penalize someone over if they don't do it. It gives the, them more enforcement teeth. I know that definition was tweaked a little already. It could change again before this is finalized and what exactly it is, but there's going to be some form of teeth, maybe exactly what it is today that goes into this. And I, what Randy was asking, though, I think was the penalties for the businesses, though, if you don't participate in voluntary disclosure, what could be the risk? And with as beneficial as the IRS has made this now, it is a warning shot. All right, here's here's the list of all the potential penalties. And I think they threw everything in the kitchen sink. I'd question even if some of those they listed in that release would apply. But there are absolutely some form of penalties. Interest alone at 8% to get this clawed back is, is pretty painful. Not to mention, uh, you know, of course, the credit itself being repaid. So this is the best opportunity for someone to take advantage and repay. And they want to make this loud and clear. And I think audits will be less lenient going forward after this if they didn't take advantage of either of these programs. We've seen cases so far where there have been audits and I have, I've seen no penalties assessed in that process because I think there were businesses that didn't have good information, uh, that didn't understand what was going on. Uh, you know, Some, some uh, willfully, maybe some a, a little more ignorantly. It, it's, a, it's a spectrum, but I think the IRS gets less uh, kind going forward with these. And, and that's what they're projecting for sure, is that there's there's risk going forward on the businesses. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, as soon as we get through that 322 and whether or not that it gets extended, as soon as we get through whenever this moratorium is running to, I think you get on the other side of that. And they've been pretty vocal, like, hey, if you're not sure of your claim, we have systems pay this back. So if you miss that window, it's not going to be good. Nope. Um, so if, and Nick, I'm going to let you go for this first. If you were going to file a 941X based on a partial suspension, how detailed should you be in your detailed explanation of your correction, line 43 of the 941X? Nick, can you expand on that? Yeah, I mean, so all these last minute filings are going to happen. With line 43, we try to be as specific as we can. Uh, we've seen people who file them where it just says, this is a claim for ERC. On our forms, we actually put, you know, we highlight the, the wages that are qualified, the health insurance qualified, and we highlight if it is a partial suspension, right, that they've met a nominal, you know, impact analysis in what way, and we highlight the beginning mandate that they qualified under and the ending mandate. So even if the ending mandate isn't for that quarter, we have that on that form. So they know, okay, here's how we assess them as qualifying during, you know, for a partial suspension. This is where it started. This is where it ended. We put that little detail in there in hopes that it will help speed up processing because there's probably going to be some form of desk audits that are happening with the IRS. So if you look at these forms, does it do anything to the actual filing itself? Maybe, maybe not. And I, I can't say. We have had clients who, when we look at the transcripts, they went under some form of audit, but they didn't actually get an official IDR. 
the audit got closed out, you could see in the transcripts, and the refunds gotten issued. So is that because of information we supplied on line 43? Could be. Um, my thing is it doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt your case. Helps establish so you're aware of like, hey, here's how we qualified. Uh, and it's going to be looked on more kindly than something that's just saying we're claiming ERC. Dan, I don't know if you do something similar. Yeah, I mean, we have uh, a lot that we'll add there. I wish I could tell you that it mattered because I've seen them get paid <laughs> from all types, right? When mm -hmm. I'm reviewing other things and helping other pros. So mixed bag to say the least. At this stage, you know, it's not going to matter uh, for much longer <laughs> uh, in this kind of question, but I don't think the IRS is doing very much with those. At least I haven't seen any evidence of it. All right, let's start wrapping up with a, a, a few final things. The one thing that I do want to touch on is just, hey, we all assume we have a week left. Is there any, you know, advice? I mean, we are under the gun now. People want to get filed potentially still. There's people that apparently been, uh, you know, legitimate claims that for some reason have not ignored it. We had multitude of emails we sent out to legitimate, we felt were legitimate claims that just hadn't got us the information yet. So it's happened. Dan's seen it as well. W what kind of advice do you have anybody? Can they get this done in a week and what should they be doing with their clients? I'll go first on this one. <laughs> um, obviously, you know, we were cutting off our date. You know, we sent out an email to all CPA firms that had clients in progress that, hey, any information we need by, you know, January 24th, we were telling people that the 22nd as well to try to, you know, let them know, hey, this needs to happen. And if it goes past the deadline, maybe they'll get it done. So if they are trying to do it last minute, right, like like Dan said, I mean, you can make certain estimates, but make sure at least your qualification, anything you're taking estimates on is very sound. So we had someone reach out to us yesterday and we kind of told them like, we can't get it done in time. However, the stuff they laid out, they laid out some great reasons. They talked about a big camps program that were just completely shut down. They made up 50% of the revenue. Like, okay, that time period, you're in a pretty good spot. How long that went, figuring that out, tying it to a mandate, not just what you followed, that's the key, right? So finding those things, making sure you have something to support it. And then when you make your claim, because it is last minute, there is the whole rule, like it has to be in the mail before the 31st. When you're actually making your claim, make sure you're sending it certified mail. Yeah, certified mail, absolutely. Got to keep those receipts. It's amazing to think that there, there's going to be some of these because of the mess of the backlog, paper processing, there'll be claims that fall apart because simply it was left on someone's desk and it was never mailed or lost in the mail, lost by the IRS. It's it's uh, sad to think. I'll throw in PEOs as well. Mm -hmm. If you don't have some sort of confirmation that the PPO has submitted for you, get on that. It is unfortunate to see, but we, we've had cases where it's been multiple years past now, the time that that was submitted through the PEO only to understand that it, it had never actually been submitted, right? You get passed around. It's always somebody different. You don't really know what's necessarily going on. It's it's a sad structure with PEOs, honestly, that way it has to be done this way and can't be done separately. They don't want to deal with it either, I'm sure. So some sort of proof that the PEO has actually done this. Unfortunately, I think some uh, have cut it off already uh, long ago, and there's just going to be, there's going to be messes. There's going to be lost ones in that regard. And Part of that is, I think, really mostly just on the PEOs dropping the, the ball <laughs> from what I've seen. Uh, and it's sad, but that's a, a huge area of risk. There's going to be lawsuits because these dollars are so big. For sure. Yeah. Nick, expand on that real quick, because what if, and Dan mentioned it, what if, you know, you submitted a while ago 
And like for us, we do an ADA 21, Dan does too, where you can track the progress. What if you've seen no action and do we assume it's lost and refile? Is there some, hey, we want to make sure we get something in in the next seven days? What if you've not seen any action on it? So, I mean, if you're able to view the transcripts, right, first and foremost, you can see if the amount of returns received, right? And that's your best certification, right? Hey, we sent this, whether it got closed out or not, and can you use that original filing date to reply to it being closed out? Because we've seen clients where their filings get closed out and they don't get an IRS notice. They're supposed to when they get closed out, but it doesn't happen always. Like Dan said, you're going to have some most unfortunate scenarios where you'll have to sit there and fight with them. Like, hey, we sent this to you. We weren't notified while it was closed out. Closed out. We didn't have a chance to respond. This is us resending it in to respond to that. You can take actions like that. But if you have proof that it's on file, you know, with the transcripts, that's the best proof you can have, right? Um, or if you call the IRS to ask if they received it. If you don't have someone's access to transcripts, that's the best thing you can have. Um, if you don't have, you know, that proof, right? I, we we told all of our clients, like, if for some reason when we felt 8821, it didn't work or we couldn't do their transcripts, we, we sent an email the last week that told them, hey, for some reason, we can't see whether there's something that's not matching the IRS records. We suggest, well, first we ask, you know, do you have your receipt from sending certified mail? If they do, great, we have that proof. If you don't, refile, have that certified mail receipt, right? You need some form of proof, whether that's verbal or transcripts proof from the IRS that it's on file, or you have that, you know, proof of receipt. You need one of those three. If not, you need to resend. Okay, that's great, Nick. And so, so just, uh, I, I think we went through quite a bit today. There's a lot of information out there. There's a lot of things under the gun right now. I'm going to give you each an opportunity, anything we potentially missed or just a, a wrap up that you want to do. And Dan, we'll start with you. Sure. Well, I think maybe the only thing we didn't cover was just the expanded aspect of the bill. I know we're just talking about the ERC today, but if you're a practitioner, keep your ear to the ground. This year, year is going to potentially be more unique. We got the research development, amortization, bonus, child tax credit, interest limitation. So there's a lot of effects potentially retroactive. Uh, I don't think you can file a return today if you wanted to anyway, but this is going to be a year that to not be in a rush. We'll see how some of these provisions come down and the timing of that, timing of the bill. It may be a hold returns situation and, and just time to be aware and be watching. So be, be cautious on those uh, for sure. Uh, amongst all the other things that we're dealing with with a normal busy season, of course, I'll say it again, communicate with this bill happening and, and expect it to go through. The audit risk is up. We got to communicate on the voluntary disclosure. That March 22nd is going to be here before we know it. It's a busy time. And if we miss out an opportunity to help someone uh, to get out of this and, and they are in a bad situation later, that's unfortunate. This, the, all of the uh, aspects of these false claims are unfortunate, but that's something we can do now, have broad communication the voluntary disclosure program out in front of people because there are some that are out there that their professionals don't know about it uh, because it hasn't popped up yet. It hasn't been cashed yet. They haven't seen it in the GL and the trial balance yet. So communicate. Nick? Yeah. uh, I mean, honestly, it's the same. There's plenty of clients out there who have claims that are not legitimate. I mean, the IRS states that's 95%. I don't know that it's that high. That seems really aggressive. I know we've done refilings with clients that are probably in there that are like second or third filings at times. But you just need to be talking to your clients about it. You, you don't know whether or not they've done it. Like Dan said, if they haven't gotten the money, they may not mention something. You know, firms that we work with, they have clients who work with other people where we're either doing, you know, second opinions on it. But if you're not sure of the claim as repair, something you need to be aware of too, right? Like you you really shouldn't be signing off on it if they took a claim that's just, for lack of a better terms, fraudulent, where it's not eligible. 
because there are penalties for you there. We didn't get to touch on a lot, of, you know, a lot of those things, but there are a lot of things at play, and there's uh, ample opportunity for you and your clients to make it right if you don't have a proper claim. So. Not to to continue down that theme, but I think that's the most important thing. Everybody's so concerned about this next week, but that is not the big thing. The big thing is March 22nd because Dan said it, Nick said it. You are going to have clients that were tricked into claiming an ERC, and I'm saying it that way, because everybody in the country was taking it, and so why not me? And look, I qualified because we had to wear masks or something crazy like that. And so you're going to have the client. And like Dan said, you're not going to see it right now. You have to be proactive because this benefit of only paying 80% of it back and still getting the full tax deduction and you're not going to get audited and you're not going to have a penalties. This is unbelievably generous by the IRS. So the March 22nd voluntary disclosure program, I think, is the most important thing that you need to get out of this discussion today. And I know that Dan said it as well. This is busy season, but you have to be proactive getting this in front of clients, even if you don't know they took any ERC or not. Okay, that's my rant there at the end. I want to thank you both for being part of this. Anytime I get to talk ERC with you guys, it's a great day. It was, uh, I think, very educational. I appreciate the information. And uh, I just want to let you all know, Troy Merritt, specialty tax firm, been around 17 years, got into ERC because that was a specialty, but there was a lot of other tax grants and incentives we deal with. We didn't jump into the building the business because of ERC. Same thing with Dan and Trout. Trout, full service, been around a long time. ERC just happened to be something Dan got excited about and did as well. But we are both we service a lot of other things other than these two things. This isn't our business. And, and so we were, we were very thrilled to be able to help uh, as many people as we did over the last few years. Looks like that's coming to an end. But it was, honestly, if I look back at our very first ERC, I start to tear up because it was helping an organization that helps children with autism. That's what the program was out there for, those types of things, those that were closed due to a mandate. And so, uh, again, uh, thank you both for being part of this. Thank you both for being so proactive and getting correct information out there for the last three plus years. And uh, it's a little sad that this may be our last uh, discussion on this, but honestly, <laughs> there's probably going to be more come up. So. <laughs> so, we'll see how the audience uh, plays out. <laughs> thank you for joining us today on the Unique CPA. You can find the show notes for today's episode and learn more about Trimerit at theuniquecpa.com. Remember to subscribe and leave a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting app. And join us next time for more expertise and insights on The Unique CPA. Professionalproductions.net